to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, a.k.a. MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on social media at MMALOTM. This week, we're going over UFC 293, going down in Sydney, Australia, headlined by a middleweight title fight between Israel Adesanya and Sean Strickland. In the co-main event, we got a heavyweight banger on tap between Tai Tuivasa and streaking Alexander Volkov, which should surely provide a finish and most likely an emphatic and highlight reel finish as well. I want to quickly just address the audio and visual features once again. Hopefully this is the last episode that you guys have to deal with the shitty audio quality, but I still want to get the content out for you guys. And hopefully starting tomorrow or Thursday, you guys will start to see the segments and the other podcasts start to drop with crystal clear audio and quality for you guys. But I appreciate you guys bearing with me as I am transitioning through my equipment uh, changes at this moment in time. So I appreciate you guys. Um, Quickly, getting through the uh, recap for last week's card, uh, which was the UFC Paris card. Lock of the Night comes through relatively easily as Fareed Bashrat goes out there and submits Clayton Rodriguez in the first round. Chalky, but that's what Chalk is supposed to do. As long as you avoid the, the landmines, you should be able to go out there and still cash. On the regional show for the LFA, we also cast our Lock of the Night play that night. And that brings our predictions for Lock of the Night's for 2023 to 75 and 23 for a 77% hit rate. So I'm very happy about that. Dog of the night, not so hot. I had Reese McKee as the lock of the, or dog of the night for the UFC Paris card. And it really came down to that second round in terms of Angelusa uh, capitalizing heavily on that big flurry that he was able to hurt McKee with. And then we saw McKee come on strong in the third round, but I thought he'd be able to come on strong in the second round and really take over the gassing Angelusa. Unfortunately, he was unable to do so, and we take an L there. On the regional, so we take an L as well on the Rodrigo Ligio under one and a half rounds. How that didn't finish under one and a half is beyond me, considering the amount of times that Ligio had him hurt badly and the referee was about to step in. But we take an L on that regardless. That brings our uh, dog of the night record now to 40 and 58 on the year for a 40%, uh, 41% hit rate. Uh, reminder, if you like doing your own research and breaking down fights and predict predicting fights, the best place to do so is on the MMA Fight Archive. There's a seven-day free, free trial for you guys to check it out. Link in the description below. We cover all the major regional organizations as well as the top three uh, MMA promotions in the world. And not to mention the Dana White Contender Series so that you guys can go out there and figure out what these guys fight like before they step inside the cage and try to earn themselves a UFC contract. There's, why, there's a reason why one of the main commentators for the Contender Series also uses this product so they can give you the most accurate information as possible because we've got as many direct links as possible for these fights on the MMA Fight Archive. Closing in on 55 subscribers at this point in time, but make sure you guys check it out. Um, and yeah, again, seven-day free trial. Link in the description below. Uh, also, lastly... Quick shout out to the Godzilla Wins team over there, providing your boy a platform to drop written content on a weekly basis. Wednesdays, we drop the main event written breakdown, and then Thursdays, we do a three best money line bet spot as well for you guys to check out. I'll have the links to those in the description below once they drop throughout Fight Week, so keep your eyes peeled for that. And then lastly, just a reminder that on Thursday, I'll be dropping a new segment, which is just going to be the quick picks for UFC 293. It's going to be an 8 to 10 minute video where I just get to the point immediately in terms of why I'm picking a certain fighter and why I think they're going to end up winning and how they end up winning. 
I know there's a short attention span amongst a lot of the viewers nowadays on YouTube. So I want to create this in-depth breakdown, which is the normal MMA Lawcast episode, but also a Thursday drop for the Quick Picks episode for anybody that just wants to get through it quickly because I know how well those seem to be doing on YouTube and I want to capitalize on that myself as well. All right. Let's not waste any more time. We got a bunch of fights to get through for this UFC 293 card. We're going to start off with the first fight of the night between debutants Kevin Jusay and Kiefer Crosby. Jusay trains out of the city kickboxing crew. Although he's originally from France, he brings in a solid kickboxing background as you would expect. The guy's very good in terms of throwing consistent leg kicks and battering the lead leg of his opponents and then letting his hands go behind it. You can kind of see the city kickboxing style in his striking, especially the way that he stands and he holds his hands, but he's very good in terms of countering opponents, setting up traps, and springing them on them as well. One aspect of his game I was very impressed with was his ability to implement a grapple-heavy approach when he needs to. He's been able to control opponents very well and does a great job in terms of riding them in certain positions, whether it's from the back or the side control position and keeping them on the mat. The one flaw I'll say in terms of his control is that he doesn't really inflict too much damage, which you know usually allows opponents, if they're able to get back to their feet, to land damage of their own to nullify the control that Jusei was able to accrue. On the flip side for Kiefer Crosby, this SBG Ireland product makes his UFC debut on a two-fight winning streak, most recently knocking out and finishing former UFC fighter Alex Cowboy Oliveira. Before that, he had a two-fight losing streak in Bellator, where he was finished by both of his opponents, and the last of which was Georgi Karahanian, who was able to get an arm triangle choke victory over him. Crosby looks like a guy that likes to go out there, bang, throw big shots, and try to knock his opponents out, but I think he's going to be coming up short in this matchup against the City Kickboxing product. I think Jusei does a great job in terms of keeping his opponents at bay, and given that he'll have the technical striking advantage in this matchup, he should be able to keep Kiefer Crosby on the end of his punches, utilizing his kicks to kind of uh, debilitate the movement of Crosby, and then really start to let go with his hands, possibly finding a finish in the second or third round of this matchup. So give me Kevin Jusei to start off on a dub for the City Kickboxing crew, who's very busy on this UFC 293 card. Next up, we're going to go with Shane Young going up against Gabriel Miranda. Very fun fight here. Shane Young looking to snap a three-fight losing streak. Last, his, uh, his last loss actually came to Blake Builder earlier this year, where he was unable to track down Builder, who used a movement-heavy approach to really just play on the outside and just close the distance to land a couple shots and then get back out to distance. That seemed to really fluff... Uh, sorry, um, fluster Shane Young, who couldn't really get his timing down and couldn't get off on effective strikes. But I expect him to do so here against Gabriel Miranda, who really reminds me of Terrence McKinney and the fact that this guy either finishes early or he goes on to either lose decisions or get finished in his own right. He doesn't seem to have the greatest grasp in terms of how to manage his gas tank the best, which is why we saw him fall off a cliff in that third or fourth minute in his UFC debut against Benoit Saint-Denis last year at UFC Paris. And I think that's going to come up once again here against Shane Young as Gabriel tries to desperately get this fight to the ground and when he's unsuccessful in doing so and unsuccessful in securing a submission I expect Shane Young to have target practice on the feet and potentially finish this by the end of the first round or early second round. 
So I love the plus money. I think it was plus 165 that we were getting on uh, the under one and a half. But I also really like the fight doesn't go to decision in case it scooches over that seven and a half minute mark. I just don't think that Miranda has the gas tank to go a full 15 minutes against a guy like Shane Young. So either he gets the early submission or he gasses out trying to do so and Shane Young really starts to let out the anger and frustration of his three-fight three losing streak and get that finish that he's been seeking ever since he finished Orlando D a couple years ago. So the pick is going to be Shane Young. He has to avoid that, avoid that early grappling onslaught for Miranda and if he's able to do so, like I said, this should be target practice for him, and he should be able to come through with the finish. But the fight doesn't go to the decision. It's going to be my favorite spot on this fight. Next up, we got Blood Diamond going up against Charlie Radke, debuting Charlie Radke, who's actually the former uh, or most recent CFFC champion. Uh, I believe it was the yeah, CFFC welterweight champion, uh, which he wanted in his last matchup where he was able to strangle the former champion and win that fight via rear naked choke. Normally he's a guy that likes to go out there and just throw big shots and try to knock his opponents out, but he's usually been using, or recently been using his BJJ black belt to try to strangle his opponents and pick up submission victories. He does a very good job in terms of closing the distance and letting go with his big shots, but also getting trips and throws to try to get fights to the ground where he can take advantage of his opponents on the mat. He trains out of Chicago where he's the head coach of, a, I think it's Evolution Martial Arts Gym, but he also trains his striking over at Valley Flow Systems, which is synonymous for guys like Bilal Mohammed and Ignacio Bahamundes. So he's getting great training and I think he's more than happy and uh, ready for this opportunity to jump into the UFC. Even though he has a 7-3 record, don't let it fool you. You know, this guy has, uh, you know, the three losses that he has are to legitimate opponents. Justin Montavio, who is a, you know, a high, a highly uh, respected prospect uh, in the Bellator cage. Austin Hubbard, who fought him in his, you know, it was only uh, Charlie Radke's third professional fight. It was the 10th for Austin Hubbard back in 2018. And then Chris Gonzalez, who's also a solid prospect on the Bellator scene as well. So Radke has legitimate competition and le legitimate experience on his belt through 10 professional fights. He's more than ready for this opportunity to jump into the UFC and take on Blood Diamond, who's still seeking his first UFC win. I don't understand why the UFC is giving Blood Diamond these unfortunate matchups. He's faced two back-to-back -back grapplers, guys that are perfect stylistic matchups for Blood Diamond, who's mainly a kickboxer. And we know why uh, Blood Diamond got the shot in the UFC to begin with. He is the boy of Israel Adesanya, and we know that he's usually, um, you know, that's really the only reason he's in the UFC. Just as Artem Lobov was in the UFC because of Conor McGregor, just as Chris Avila was in the UFC because of Nate and Nick Diaz, uh, Mariano Marco or Marcos Mariano, I believe the guy was uh, who was in the UFC because of Anderson Silva. Same thing with Blood Diamond here. They're just doing him a favor, doing Adesanya a favor, having this guy in the UFC. If you want to make the most of having a guy like Blood Diamond in the UFC, put him up against other strikers. Give the fans what they want in terms of having two skilled and technical strikers going at it. But no, for some reason they want to continue to give him to grapplers, and that seems to be the same case this weekend. Even though he's fighting in his home or near hometown, home country, home uh, home field advantage, if that's what you want to call it. But Radke should be able to be competitive in the striking in terms of the power that he brings to the table. But I fully expect him to be able to get this fight to the ground and slowly work for a submission, which I think will come to fruition within the under two and a half round mark. 
I see it sitting around minus 185, which I don't mind at all here. I'm expecting violence, and I'm expecting Radke to go out there with, and do what Orion Kosey was unable to do. He got close submission opportunities, but I expect Radke to actually finish those spots. Radke's going to be my pick. I completely understand why he's a chalky favorite here, but I'm going to go with violence just in case Blood Diamond somehow pulls out that first UFC loss by knockout. But prediction is going to be Radke by submission. Next up, we got Nazareth Hackfrass going up against Landon Quinones, starting off on the Hackfrass side. He's coming off of a victory over John McDessie last time around, where he was able to beat him up on the feet and land the more significant strikes or more significant shots. I believe they were pretty much even in terms of the strikes landed that night, and then he ended up getting his hand raised by decision. Nazareth actually last competed on the last uh, UFC Paris card, not last week, but a year before that, taking a bunch of time off, and now he's coming back and trying to pick up another win here. He was originally scheduled to fight Sam Patterson, who was forced to pull out of this matchup, and in steps Landon Canones, who if you guys watched the most recent season of The Ultimate Fighter, you would recognize him as the fighter that got tapped out in 55 seconds by Jason Knight. I don't completely understand why the UFC decided to bring a guy that was given an opportunity, completely fumbled the bag, and saying, hey, you know what, let's just throw you in the UFC regardless. I'm sure there were plenty of other guys that would have been happy to take this uh, opportunity to take on Nazar Hakaras on short notice, but Landon Canones is the guy that gets the call. Canones initially came from the Titan FC scene down there in Florida. He was their champion. He had about two years off between 2020 and 2022 where he was nursing a, a 20 ACL, if I'm not mistaken, but he's undefeated since coming back. His only loss on the uh, regional scene came to Mohamed Naimov, who just recently made his short notice UFC debut where he knocked out Jamie Malarkey back in June. But uh, that was a close split decision loss that Canones took that night, and he has yet to taste defeat officially since that matchup. He's an aggressive striker who likes to utilize his long-range weapons and try to utilize his speed and athleticism to defeat his opponents. So I believe this fight is actually going to play out closer than the odds suggest. I'll never understand the heavy chalk on Nazra Akbar's time and time again. And this is one of those fights that I can see playing out closely. Do I have the balls to go out there and actually bet on Kononas though? Nah. I'm going to be skipping out on this fight. I think this fight does actually end up going the full 15 minutes. So I'd rather go the over two and a half more than anything. But I think it's still going to be Hackbrass who ends up coming out on top here. Taking advantage of some of the striking defense shortcomings in Quinones' game. And I think he picks up another decision victory. Next up, we got the aforementioned Jamie Malarkey going up against John McDessey. Very intriguing matchup here. And the fact that John McDessie is still in the UFC is mind-blowing to me. But then you look over his resume, and most recently, this guy's only competed once in the UFC, uh, once a year in the UFC since 2017. And he's managed to put together a good enough record that he and avoiding extended losing streaks that he still manages to keep his roster spot. He's 5-3 since his last losing streak, but he's never really lost, or he, in that time, he hasn't lost any consecutive matchups. His most impressive performance was going out there and outstriking the much taller and much longer Ignacio Bahamundes in 2021. That was a very impressive performance as he was able to utilize his kicks and then crashing the pocket and getting off on big shots to really hurt Bahamundes that night. But he came up short last time around, like I spoke about earlier, against Nazra, who was able to land the bigger, bigger and more impactful strikes, making it look good enough for the judges for Hakpras to get his hand raised that night. But McDessey is a veteran. He's a guy who can make fights a lot closer than they should be. And that could be potentially what happens this weekend against Malarkey. 
Malarkey is a guy that's significantly improved since we initially saw him go to war against Brad Rodell in his UFC debut a couple years ago. But now he does a great job in terms of blending in his takedowns behind his strikes and doing a great job of taking his opponents to the ground and controlling them there. But he does a great job in terms of managing his distance as well. I believe it's his work that the Volkanovski camp and doing a little bit of work over there at City Kickboxing, if I'm not mistaken, that has really improved his game overall. I think he's going to come back and be a little bit better in terms of his striking defense, especially after he got knocked out by Nainamov back in June, who was a short notice replacement at that time, um, for people that forgot about that. I don't get the heavy chalk. On Malarkey here, like McDessie is one of those sneaky dogs and sneaky fighters that can go out there and still pull off victories. But I feel like at 38 years old, the guy's going to start slowing down a little bit. Malarkey just seems a little bit more complete at this point in time. So I'm looking for a output and wrestling approach for Malarkey to get his hand raised. I would much rather the over two and a half than the Malarkey money line here. But overall, I'm likely going to pass on this matchup. And I'll stick with my final prediction, which is going to be Malarkey by decision. All right, next up, we got Jack Jenkins going up against Chepe Metescal. Very fun fight here, Jack Jenkins. And Chepe actually fought uh, on the last card uh, against different opponents, obviously. And that was only about two months ago, maybe even less than that. But I believe that the quick turnaround for Jenkins here all has to do with the fact that this fight is taking place in Australia, a place that he very much enjoys uh, competing in. This is going to be his third walk to the cage this year, uh, and I believe it's a bit of a step down from the last opponent he faced. He went up against Jamal Emmers last time around, and he won a split decision, a very close fight, a fight that a lot of people actually scored the opposite way for Jamal Emmers. But I think it was a striking and ending off with a lot of leg kicks for Jack Jenkins in the first two rounds that forced the judges to score that fight in his favor. That's that's not just where he's great. He, he's great overall. Like Jamal Emers was just a significant step up for him in competition where, you know, we have a guy in Emers who has great wrestling, great control. As we saw in that third round, he was able to get four, four minutes of control time over Jack Jenkins. But I think that Jack is a guy that can really put the game together very well. He's athletic, he's fast, he has great wrestling, and the way he just blends his striking uh, in front of his wrestling is very impressive. But I love his calf kicking game. He's very relentless with it, which allows him to, uh, or pretty much just um, destroy the movement of his opponents so that he can get the rest of his game going. Whether that means landing takedowns or even just getting off on his punches, he does a great job in terms of slowing his opponents down and then doing great work from there. But his wrestling game, especially when he uses it offensively, is very difficult to deal with. Chepe Mariscal is a guy that has faced the best of the best on the regional scene before finally getting a short notice call up last uh, June to take on Trevor Peak, and he showed what he was made of that night. He took that fight on short notice up a weight class and put Trevor Peak through hell. But that didn't come without some adversity as Trevor Peak was able to go out there and have some good success of his own, but it was never enough for him to get any of those rounds scored for him. Chepe was close to finishing him on numerous occasions, but was unable to get that submission uh, locked up tight enough or get enough ground and pound going that the referee was forced to step in. But Chepe, great all-around fighter, good striking, I'd say better wrestling than his striking, uh, and a good gas tank as well, considering that he's training out of team elevation or elevation fight team. But I still lean Jack here. I think Jack has the physical advantages here. I think he has the better overall game and the better ability to implement the overall game than Chepe. Chepe will be a step behind in terms of the speed. Uh, the, I believe Chepe could potentially still have some durability issues. And I think if a guy is going to exploit it, it's possibly a guy like Jack Jenkins 
who's going to make him work a lot and then land a lot of shots that Chepe is not going to see coming. So I don't mind the chalk on here uh, on a guy like Jack Jenkins. I think Jenkins has a, uh, an immense amount of potential. And even though he didn't look the greatest in the Jamal Emmers fight, that was a great experience for him to go out there and be like, hey, like this is... I know what this level of competition feels like now. I need to raise my game even more to break through to the next level. So yes, even though he got the win last time around, I feel like the UFC is kind of treating him like he lost that fight, giving him a step down in competition in Mariscal, and hopefully he still goes out there and gets the win. Minus 220-ish favorite. I think that's pretty accurate, and I think that's a damn good spot to take a shot on Jack Jenkins as well. So give me Jenkins and Jenkins by decision. Small sprinkle on a potential KO prop here in case Mariscal's chin uh, is still as flimsy as I believe it could be. All right, um, next fight, Carlos Oberg versus Daun Jung. Very fun fight here between two strikers, but I think that we might see Jung look up to go out there and implement a grapple-heavy approach. That's what he had to face in his last matchup against Devin Clark, as both guys traded barbs that entire 15 minutes, and both guys accrued close to 11 minutes of control time combined, concerning how much of that fight took place in the clinch and then in the takedowns. But it was ultimately Devin Clark who was able to get his hand raised as he landed the more significant strike mark, the more significant damage, and got the more uh, control time and, and and dominated in those positions compared to what Dao Nguyen was doing. Carlos Holberg is on a four-fight winning streak right now and finished three of those opponents and is really starting to come into his own and really getting that confidence that he seemed to uh, lack in his UFC debut when he came up short against Kennedy and Zetchuku. We know that Alberg is, you know, one of the next big things coming out of city kickboxing. And at light heavyweight, he probably has a solid path to that title if he continues to go out there and get these um, dominant and impressive knockout victories. He's very fast and very difficult to deal with when he gets his striking going. And I think that's where Darwin Young could end up having some issues here. But I'm not so hot on getting behind the minus 280, minus 300 on the Alberg side. Daun Yung is better than the two-fight losing streak that he's on, and I feel there's a lot of recency bias playing into this line. You got guys on the complete opposite sides of the pendulum in terms of the momentum that they're on. You got Daun Yung who's on a two-fight losing streak, and then you got Carlos Holberg who's on a four-fight winning streak. Not often do you, guys, do you get guys that are on completely different trajectories matched up against each other, but for Alberg, this is a great step up in competition for him to continue to secure valuable experience so that once he gets to the top of the division, he knows what it takes to beat these guys, and that will help him, like I said, once he gets closer to the top and uh, eventually earns himself a title shot, which is absolutely possible considering the trajectory that he's on. But Jung is grindy, he's tough, and he's strong. And if he's able to kind of survive that early onslaught for Olberg and that early speed advantage and power advantage, he could make this grindy. Like he could do what he did to William Knight in terms of just grinding him and grappling him and taking him to the ground and doing good work from on top. But I feel like Carlos Olberg has done enough improving over his uh, you know UFC stretch so far that he won't get stuck in those bad positions. And I feel like it's going to be too much for Jung early in this matchup. I'm still going to take Albert to win by knockout, but I'd rather take his knockout prop than I would the minus 300 on his money line. The fight will play out closer than that, but if Albert looks like the minus 300, he likely forgets to finish regardless. So give me Albert by knockout. All right, next up, another fight in the light, or actually I believe it's the only fight on the card that's in the light heavyweight division. Oh, I lied, sorry. <laughs> for some reason, I thought the Albert fight was a heavyweight fight. Back-to-back uh, -back light heavyweight matchups here. This one between Tyson Pedro and Anton Turcali. Now, Tyson Pedro, he took uh, uh, his 
uh, a loss last time around to Modestus Bukowskis. That was his first real fight after that three and a half year long layoff that he had. Like I get it, he fought Harry Hunsucker um, and the other name who's completely uh, uh, escaping me at this moment in time. But there were layups for a guy like Tyson Pedro. There were very easy fights for him to go out there and just get his feet wet again, get a couple highlight reel finishes, and now get tossed back into a uh, legit competition like he did against Bukowskis. But then we saw the ceiling of a guy like Tyson Pedro. You know, he, he's dangerous when he can get a submission game going or if he's able to just truck guys in the striking room like he did against Harry Hunsucker. But for the most part, he's not that good. You know what I mean? He's, like I said, crafty submission game when he gets on top, but he gets very deflated pretty quickly. And that's where most opponents are able to pull away and especially in deep waters and take home a decision victory or even get a late finish of their own. Tukali is a guy that I trusted a little bit too much in his last matchup against Vitor Petrino. I thought his wrestling advantage would be more emphatic as he would be able to get those takedowns and really grind out Petrino from that top position. But Petrino was so strong and explosive in those spots that when he did get taken down, he did a great job of immediately getting back to his feet or pulling off a reversal and ending up in dominant position. So hats off to Tukali for taking the beating that he did that night. But I feel like he still has a lot of positives to show off even though he's on a two-fight losing streak. I think this matchup against Pedro is the perfect matchup for him to go out there and showcase why he was deserving of a UFC roster spot in the first place, even after a very abysmal performance on the Contender Series from a Dana White perspective. But I think he landed like 11 takedowns that night and got 13 minutes of control time, if I'm not mistaken. But that's his style, takedowns and just heavy top pressure. And I feel like that's what he can do here against Tyson Pedro. I think his submission defense is good enough to deal with some of the crafty subs that we might see from Pedro early in this matchup. But as long as he can assert that top pressure and really start to wear and break Pedro, he's going to pull away late here. And I think he can just give us another classic Anton Tercali performance. So at near pick'em odds, uh, you know, Tercali let me down heavy last time around. But I don't think that Pedro has the explosivity nor the power or strength that a guy that Vitor Petrino brings to the table. So give me Tercali here, and I'm going to take Tercali to win by decision. Next up, we got a rematch of a fight that actually took place last time around. I believe it was a couple months ago, back in June. But a fight it uh, ended in a no contest. It's Justin Taffa going up against Austin Lane. Justin Taffa, um, uh, well, that fight only played out for 29 seconds. We saw pretty much what we expected from those guys. Austin Lane tried to assert his kicking game, staying at distance and staying at range. But unfortunately, Justin Taffa closed the distance, landed a big shot. And as Austin, Lingo, or Austin Lane was um, reacting to it, he accidentally poked the eyes very badly of Justin Taffa. And Taffa was unable to continue that night. But that's exactly how I ex expected the fight to play out. A lot of movement from Lane, a lot of kicks, a lot of just trying to keep the distance while Taffa is the one crashing the pocket, trying to land his big bombs. And to me, 29 seconds is not a lot to really take much from that fight, but I really saw that Taffa was getting closer and closer with those big shots. And I really believe that Lane has some issues dealing with big strikes, especially from power punchers like a guy like Justin Taffa. So I don't want to meander too much about this matchup because it goes one of two ways. Austin Lane successfully keeps fights on the uh, at distance and really just picks apart um, uh, Taffa and just wins by decision, or Taffa successfully crashes that pocket, lands the big bomb, and puts him away. 
I'm going to go with the ladder here, and I'm going to take Toffa and Toffa to win this fight by knockout. Minus 165 on him to win by knockout. A little bit chalky for a specific prop, but if he wins this fight, that's probably how it ends up happening. So rather than taking minus 200 Toffa, I'm going to go with minus 165 Toffa by KO and hope that he lands on the chin of Austin Lane here. Next up, we got a flyweight belt between Manal Kopp, who was originally scheduled to fight hometown hero Kai Kara France, but now is scheduled to fight Felipe Dos Santos. Felipe Dos Santos most recently was scheduled to fight on the contender series a couple weeks back, but unfortunately his, opponents, his opponent missed weight badly and the fight was canceled. And then luckily the timing worked out perfectly where Dos Santos was able to skip the contender series interview and get right into the UFC and assert himself you know, near the top of the division, especially if he's able to pull off a victory this weekend. He trains out of the Charles Del Bronx Oliveira camp, and you can expect a similar type of approach from him. I don't want to say he's as effective as Charles Oliveira, but he's aggressive with his striking, and he's very aggressive with his jiu-jitsu as well, whether he's on the bottom or if he's on the top position. But I think he's taking a massive step up in competition here, going from fighting the guys that he was on the regional scene to fighting a guy like Manal Cap, who has tremendous amount of experience and is very difficult to deal with, especially in the striking realm. I think that will see Manel do a great job in terms of crashing the pocket, closing the distance, landing big strikes, and potentially finding the chin of Felipe Dos Santos here and putting him out cold. This should be a fun fight for as long as it lasts. I think that it could end up being, a, you know, possibly even fight of the night, depending on how long Dos Santos can continue to take those repeated big shots from Cop. But I fully expect Cop to eventually land that big shot and get the win in this fight. I expect him to be very pissed off about the fact that he was about to fight a guy in Alex Perez before, then he was supposed to fight a guy in um, uh, Kai Car France this time around. And both those fights would have put him right into right in line for a potential title shot or number one contender fight. But now he's forced to fight a UFC newcomer and just try to stay active enough to hopefully stay relevant. So look for him to go out there and try to come through on a highlight reel finish. Line, again, I, I never really get too far uh, ahead of myself with the cap-heavy chalk, but I think he wins this fight, and I think he wins it emphatically. All right, co-main event time. Heavyweights, we got Tai Tuivasa, uh, who is, um, sorry, we got Tai Tuivasa going up against Alexander Volkov. I wanted to start off on Tai Tuivasa so quickly that I almost forgot to mention Alexander Volkov. But Tuivasa had a five-fight winning streak between 2020 and 2022, and now he finds himself on a two-fight losing streak. We can cut him some slack, though, considering the fact that it came against Cyril Gunn and Sergey Pavlovich, who's absolutely streaking and one of the best heavyweights on the planet right now. But Tai Tuivasa is a guy that has pretty much accepted the role of being a fan favorite who can deliver some, some big knockouts against whatever competition, but a guy that will come up short against the top of the division. And unfortunately for him, he's fighting a guy in Alexander Volkov, who is looking like a guy that deserves to be at the top of the division. Volkov is a very impressive fighter who I believe is 10 and 4 since joining the UFC, but his four losses are coming against legit guys. You know, he was 11 seconds away from finishing Derek Lewis or beating, excuse me, beating Derek Lewis by decision before he ended up getting clipped there. I'm sure he learned a lot from that fight. And if I'm not mistaken, that was the last time he got knocked out as well. He lost to Curtis Blades with the heavy wrestling game of Blades. Can't blame him there. Cyril Gunn completely outstruck him for five rounds. And then the Tom Aspinall fight. We know Tom Aspinall is an animal in terms of being able to finish guys in a variety of different ways. And Volkov was just a step behind that night. 
But Volkov should be able to beat a guy of Tai Tuivasa's level. And we've seen a very aggressive style from Alexander Volkov during this two-fight winning streak that he's on. He's utilizing his kicking game very well, and then utilizing that one-two down the pipe, maintaining his distance, and maximizing his reach that he has over his opponents. And I'm expecting to do, him to do that here against Tuivasa. Ty might be able to land a couple big shots, and this is heavyweight at the end of the day. A big shot could end the fight at any point in time, but I think the groove and the 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 momentum and the 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 confidence that Volkov has at this point in time is going to be too much for Tuivasa. I think we'll see him sticking with that front kick up the middle, just consistently hitting the gut of Tuivasa, slowing him down and potentially even finishing him with a body shot. But I think it's just going to slow down Tuivasa. That's where we'll see Volkov start to get off in his big strikes. Barrage of strikes should come soon thereafter. And I think we see Volkov finish him within a round and a half at least. So give me Volkov. Uh, Volkov to win impressively here. And I think he does it by KO. And that brings us to our main event of the evening between Israel Adesanya and Tai Tuivasa, or Tai Tuivasa, Sean Strickland. I mean, I still got Tai Tuivasa in my head because of the previous breakdown. Israel Adesanya looking to defend his title for the first time after winning it back from Alex Pereira earlier this year. Like I said, going up against Sean Strickland. Uh, we, it's, it's, first, let's just give Adesanya his props. You know, having the 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 devil over his shoulder in terms of Alex Pereira just continuously showing up in his nightmares, showing up to whatever he's doing and just taking away the gold from him. From his losses in the uh, in the kickboxing world to that loss back in November of last year. And then finally exercising those demons and getting the win back, uh, I believe it was in March or April, uh, where he was emphatically able to close the chapter of Alex Pereira. Obviously Pereira up at light heavyweight now, uh, and I don't think Izzy really has to worry much about him at this point in time, unless he decides to go up to 205 pounds and take on Alex Pereira if Pereira ever gets his hands on the light heavyweight title. But... We know what to expect from Adesanya, right? This guy has discipline, striking, does a great job in terms of setting up traps and springing them on his opponents, just like he did against Pereira last time around. But he's also a wizard in terms of executing game plans, just as he has done it time and time again against guys like Robert Whitaker, Jared Kandanier, and especially what he did against Paulo Costa and just picking him apart and finishing him in the second round of that fight. I expect him to do the same thing here against Sean Strickland. Now, I'm a big Sean Strickland fan, and I was so happy that he finally got a title shot but his striking is, I don't want to call it basic because that's insulting. It's good against guys like Abus Magomedov and, you know, the the Jared Cannoneers, guys that are just willing to go out there and throw down. Sean Strickland's more than happy to go out there and throw down. But you see levels when he's fighting other guys that are technically way better strikers than him. Alex Pereira fully took advantage of him and landed that uh, lead left hook, I believe it was, that put him out cold. Israel Adesanya is foaming at the mouth for this type of matchup. This is going to be a perfect way for him to go out there and showcase his kickboxing, kickboxing expertise and eventually find a finish. Starting with leg kicks and then eventually getting him to flinch on leg kicks and going up high and potentially knocking him out with a head kick. I fully expect it to be a head kick that Adesanya lands here to push Sean Strickland away. Sean Strickland is no joke though, right? Don't get me wrong. This guy marches forward, treats fighting almost like sparring, but all, like he goes hard in sparring too, so there's no real difference for him. But the big issue that he has is his striking defense. This guy just leaves his head on the center line every single time. He kind of just puts his guard up or his uh, shoulder up to try to stop the shots and leans back. That's not going to work against high-level strikers like Israel Adesanya is. So I'm, I think that Adesanya... Uh, 
you know, I think he has good enough takedown defense to deal with any type of takedowns that Sean's going to be looking at to implement here. Sean is, you know, a BJJ brown belt, if I'm not mistaken, and that's probably the advantage that he has in this matchup. But given how much he's fallen in love with his striking, I just don't see him going out there and having tremendous success with the grappling. So I think we see Adesanya keep this fight up uh, good enough and long enough that he continues to work the legs and the body of uh, Sean Strickland until he's able to open up that headshot and get him out of there and knock him out. So yeah, Adesanya is the side here. Minus 650, crazy, but it makes complete sense here. Uh, but I'm going to hone in on Adesanya by KO. I think he sets up a trap similar to what he did against Paulo Costa, and he springs it on him within the first four rounds or so, and eventually gets a finish. And we get, and still, Israel Adesanya. There you guys go, breakdowns on all of the fights for UFC 293. Hopefully you guys have enjoyed the breakdowns. Reminder, Wednesday, top three lock of the night, top three dog of the night candidate videos will drop for you guys. Thursday, we got the Locky Trinity, or sorry, yeah, Locky Trinity and Locky Two-Step, as well as the Quick Picks breakdown video dropping for you guys. And then Thursday, we got the three best prop bets for you guys as well. Uh, and lastly, uh, Cage Warriors, 159 goes down this week. If you want breakdowns for those, written breakdowns will strictly be posted on the Patreon. Check uh, the link in the description below for that if you guys are interested. Otherwise, good luck on all your action this week, folks. And I'll see you guys throughout the week with even more content for USC 293. Peace. Last thing.